Thank you, Cindy. Well, I do want to take the opportunity to wish you a happy Father's Day as well. Thank you for choosing to, uh, to worship with us this morning. Uh, Michael, when he did the children's dedication, uh, quoted that text about don't provoke your children to wrath, and my children sitting next to me all leaned forward looking at me. I have no idea why. But I have learned um, some things through personal experience and years of ministry. I've, I've discovered that being raised in a Christian nation, or, or, or even more narrowly, being raised in a Christian family has some unique challenges. For example, on the one hand, I've talked to many who have told me, I, I can't remember not believing in Jesus. I, I, was, I was brought to church from infancy, like these children that we dedicated. I've heard all of the stories since I was old enough to understand. I've I've always thought of Jesus as the Savior who came to die for the sins of His people, and, and therein lies the challenge. I can't, I can't really remember when I was saved. I, I've always believed. If you find yourself in that situation, let me say this, whether you can remember the day of your spiritual birthday or not is not relevant. What is important is your, is your present confession. That is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And you say, well, yeah, I've always believed that. Do you believe that He took on flesh to die for sinners and was raised again the third day? Well, yeah, yes, I always have. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? And have you asked Him to forgive you of those sins and to be your Savior? And you say, of course. Then by your present confession, I, I believe that you're a Christian, a believer. Now, don't misunderstand. I believe in the born-again experience. That, that is that there came a time when you believed Jesus for your salvation. But whether or not you've got a date written in the flyleaf of your Bible, a, a spiritual birthday that you, that you can remember, it's not really the point. Do you believe right now that Jesus died for you, and are you trusting Him and Him alone for your salvation? If so, you can dismiss those nagging doubts and trust our great Savior for His saving grace. But, but, but that, that leads to the next challenge of, uh, of being reared in a, in a Christian home, and that is you think you're automatically in because... Well, your family believes, or, or your nation believes. Ask some, are you a Christian? And, and they will respond, yes. And in fact, somewhat over 70% of, uh, of people in the U.S. call themselves Christians. Uh, however, ask them why, and you may hear something like this, well, I'm an American, aren't I? Or, oh, or I suppose most of us wouldn't fall into that woeful misunderstanding, but how many of how many of you would say, well, of course I'm a Christian. I was raised in a Christian home. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Methodist. I, I was always a good Catholic. Or I was raised in the great Church of Alliance Bible Fellowship. Does being reared in a certain family or a certain Christian denomination or a certain church make you a Christian? The, the answer is, is no. It is only explicit faith in the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and, and what He came to do th that saves. I don't want you to miss that. Explicit, personal faith. 
You see, faith is necessary for God's saving power to be unleashed. Personal faith, your faith. I've said it this way many times before God has no grandchildren. Just because your parents are Christians does not mean that you are. You must believe for yourself. And so I suppose for some of you, this was your experience. You, you grew up a Christian home, and there came a time when you faced a, a, a crisis of faith. Maybe you went off to college or went off to, to the workforce. You, you left home, and, and suddenly you found that you got to decide. No longer was mommy going to wake you up for, for church. You got to decide. Do, do I really believe this stuff? Or do I believe it because my parents believed it? Perhaps, like the drama indicated, you even walked away for a while. You shut it down for a season, and, 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 and then after a while you faced a, a, a challenge and you came to the end of your, yourself and, and, and you thought of that faith of your parents I really do believe, not just for them, but, but for me, and you were gloriously and, and graciously saved, brought into the kingdom of God. But that leads to a third challenge of, of being reared in a Christian home, and it's really the one that I want to talk to you about today. It goes something like this. Some would say, I don't believe precisely because I was raised in a Christian home. What do I mean? Well, one of two things. Some of you would say, I, I was raised by parents, well, they, they called themselves Christians, but I lived with them. I know the real people. No, not the people who showed up all clean and shiny on Sundays. No, no, I saw them at home. I saw the way they treated each other. I certainly saw the way they treated me, the way they really lived their lives, and nothing but hypocrites. And, and, and perhaps at some point you made a decision, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. Okay. And if that has been your experience, I want you to know that I'm terribly sorry. But let me offer a couple further thoughts. First, it, it might just be that, that your parents are, well, they're just broken people. You see, the gospel does not make us perfect, but it does put us on the path to sanctification, of growing in holiness, of, of growing in Christ-likeness. And if your parents are on that path, then let me say very gently, give them a break. They're not perfect any more than you are. And I would also remind you further that Christianity is not built on Christians. Christianity, you see, is built on Christ. Examine the life of any Christian, and eventually you will find failure. But examine the life of Jesus, and you will find glorious, gracious, loving, divine perfection. You will find one who will never let you down. Which leads to the last, again, the third one related challenge. Maybe. Maybe you were reared in the home of faithful Christians, but you have chosen not to believe. In fact, that is the very reason that you don't believe for, for some strange sense of individual freedom. And the, I'm not going to believe just because they believe has become, I will not believe. 
And so as a result, it is becoming increasingly popular to not believe in opposition to those closest to you, your family, your, your parents. And despite the preponderance of evidence, you, you have swung with the pendulum. I, I don't want to believe just because my, my parents believe. The, the, the fact is, I think that's why they chose to, to believe. That's why many believe. They were raised in a Christian family, so, so they just believe because they're supposed to, but, but, but not me. I won't believe. Good for you. And as a result, the largest group of so-called atheists in our country is among those 30 and under. Because you see, that now is the thing to do. <laughs> Your familiarity has bred contempt. You reject precisely because so many believe. Oh, there's nothing really wrong with Christianity other than that you were raised in it. I will not believe because others do. You want to go your own way? Make your own choices, live your own life, live how you want. And despite the rationality of the faith and despite the power of the gospel narratives, despite the proof of changed lives all around you, despite the fact that it's not just your parents who believe, but we're talking two billion people on the planet today, you refuse to believe to your own eternal peril. We have been in the gospel of Mark for some time now. It, it, it has been Mark's purpose, you see, to, to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the proof has been, well, it's been rather strong, actually remarkable. A after the prologue in the first half of that first chapter, Jesus launched into His Galilean ministry, Galilee of northern Israel. He did things, you know, like drive out demons and heal every buddy who came to him of every disease, lepers and paralytics. His teaching was, was amazing. It was with authority. And he then began calling disciples to himself. And of course, with that rising popularity, we saw rising opposition. Because you see, not everyone likes what he was doing. Not, not unlike today. I don't like the demands that he places on my life. You know, they didn't like him then, forgiving sins, healing on the Sabbath. So the religious leaders, the religious leaders were conspiring how to kill him. Then there was that day that his own family came from Nazareth to get him. You see, they thought he'd lost his mind. Let's do an intervention. <laughs> Let's bring him home, see if we can bring him to his senses. Did you catch that? His own family, those who grew up with him. If anybody ought to know, they thought him crazy. After that, Jesus ratcheted things up a bit after choosing his own 12 disciples and, and, and teaching in parables. At the end of chapter 4 and through chapter 5, he performed some rather spectacular, in fact, they must be called awe-inspiring miracles. I mean, he calmed the storm. He drove out a legion of demons. He healed a woman with an issue of blood, and, and then he raised a little girl from the dead. 
This is incredible. He demonstrated divine authority over nature and demons and disease and, and, and now even death. This is remarkable proof. Who wouldn't believe this? Well, those you think would believe. In fact, those you think should believe. You know, the religious and, and even his own family. They don't. Because familiarity breeds contempt. And Jesus says it a different way in our text today. Look at it with me. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 and following say this. And Jesus went out from there, that's Capernaum, and, and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and, and the many, listening, many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And, and such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And, and they took offense at him. And, and so Jesus said to them, familiarity breeds contempt. You see, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. And he could do no miracles there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Those you think would believe, sh should believe, don't. We're simply going to make our way through this story today. I don't even have an outline uh, about how Jesus re was rejected by his own family. And maybe you are here and you're rejecting because of the familiarity of the faith. You grew up with it j just like they grew up with Jesus. <laughs> Can you imagine? They'd seen it firsthand. My hope in this continuing remarkable proof that the Holy Spirit will open your heart, He must do a divine work so that you will respond in belief. And then for those of you who have family members, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, maybe even moms and dads who should believe but don't believe, I want to end with some encouragement. So let's, let's look at the story today. Jesus has been doing his ministry largely up in Capernaum on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then now he makes his way, it's about 25 miles to the southwest to his hometown of Nazareth to, to be with his own family. And then, by the way, Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament, not mentioned in the Talmud, not even by Josephus, who was a historian at this time. It's, it was, you see, rather an insignificant village built on the side of a, of a rocky hill. Archaeological evidence suggests that it was at most at this time about 500 people. And then we remember Jesus wasn't born there. He was born in Bethlehem. But, but, but he was reared in this no-cal Nazareth. It's why Nathaniel, uh, when he hears of Jesus possibly being the Messiah, he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And be like, can any good thing come out of me camp? <laughs> if you live in me camp, I, it's fine. I just think that's a weird name. <laughs> we, we, we notice his disciples are with him. 
Now, we're used to that. It's kind of normal for us to hear. But you have to understand, disciples follow rabbis. Jesus was no rabbi. I mean, he'd received no formal training at the feet of an approved uh, rabbi. He's not supposed to have followers. Sabbath comes, and he, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue and began to teach. Again, that may seem a bit unusual. He showed up to church, the pastor preaches. And, but, but, but then, this was the practice, a visiting qualified man, a rabbi or a scribe, would be invited to speak. Well, because of his notoriety, Jesus speaks. Now, here we don't really know what he says. It's likely the same event as found in Luke chapter 4. You remember that. He read from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and that's a messianic prophecy, and everybody knew it, and he sits down and closes the scroll, and everybody kind of looks at him and says, well, what are you going to say? And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Really? And so they take him at that point to, to throw him off the cliff. Remember rocky side of a hill. We'll save that story for Luke when we get there in you know, 10 or 15 years. Now, regardless, <laughs> as usual at this point, his hearers were astonished. Remember, his teaching was not like the scribes. He had his own authority. It's full of wisdom and truth, unlike what they'd ever heard. Again, they were amazed or astonished. All at his teaching. This is incredible, but they got a problem. This is still Jesus. Little Jesus that grew, grew up with us. Familiarity. So they ask a series of five questions. First two are found in the end of verse two. They, they ask, where did this man, that's not even call him little Jesus. <laughs> where did this man get these things? And, and in the second, what is this wisdom given to him, such miracles performed by his hands? I don't know. Where do you think supernatural wisdom and supernatural power comes from? Newsflash, let's try a supernatural God. You see, Jesus' words and his works proved over and over that he was the Messiah, but, but people choose over and over to willfully reject the evidence. Please notice at this point, this is not just a lack of faith. This is not just deficient faith, a struggling faith, not a, no, a lack of knowledge which leads to faith. This is undeniable evidence which is what we're doing going through the Gospel of Mark, undeniable evidence that produces settled unbelief. Not like, unlike some of you. You've heard about it. The evidence is strong. You've seen it in the lives of your family. I will not believe. They just heard Jesus' words. They no doubt heard the stories. Nazareth was, again, only a day, long day's walk from Capernaum. It's possible several people were eyewitnesses. Not only that, verse 5, he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them right there in Nazareth. And words out. Lame walking, blind seeing, deaf hearing, lepers cleansed, dead breathing. <laughs> and after hearing and seeing, they choose not to believe. Why familiarity? Notice, as an aside, they did not try to dismiss his works because there could be no denying them. They just, they, they just didn't do anything about the facts. 
Over and over in the Gospel of John, Jesus says something like, my words and my works prove who I am. John chapter 5, the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, by the way, they testify about me that the Father has sent me, that I've come from Him. John chapter 10, if I don't do the works of my Father, don't, don't believe in me, but if I do do them, you've got a problem. It's basically what he says. You've got to deal with that. Overwhelming evidence. Stick your head in the sand. His words and his works were proof. There was no denying it, but they did deny it. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miracles? They heard it. They saw it. They chose not to believe. There's actually no rational reason to not believe other than, listen to me very carefully, other than the hardness of of their hearts. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 3. He who believes in me is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Here's the problem. Men love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, denies the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This, you see, is the bottom line. Some refuse to believe, present them with all the evidence, the facts, they argue with it, they deny it because they love their sin, their darkness more than truth. I choose darkness over Jesus. Next three questions are found in verse 3. Is this not the carpenter? Is this not the son of Mary? And then are these not his siblings, brothers and sisters? Now, let me begin before I even answer those questions. What does that have to do with anything? Here's what they were struggling with. Jesus was one of them. He wasn't a rabbi formally trained. He wasn't a scribe. This is the only place that he's actually called a carpenter. He usually is the son of a carpenter. The word carpenter is used to speak of a woodworker or a stone worker or a metal worker. He probably did all of those since it was a small village. He didn't enter his public ministry until he was 30. So for the last 15 plus years, he was a carpenter right there in Nazareth. These people were saying he's just a He's just your average common labor. Now listen, that's not meant to be derogatory. They were, but what they meant is he can't be the Messiah. He doesn't come from where he, he doesn't have the right pedigree. He didn't come from a king's family, a ruler's family, even a, from a rabbi or a Pharisee's family. He doesn't have the proper training. How can he be the Messiah? Look, his family's here with us, Mary, brothers, sisters. He's no one special. He's just a commoner, a local like us, familiarity. What difference does this make? Let me ask you, do you think that it mattered to the leper where Jesus got his degree? Do you think it mattered to Jairus' daughter where Jesus was educated? Do you think it mattered to the paralytic where Jesus grew up? And whether or not he knew how to swing a hammer? Yet in Nazareth, in their willful unbelief, they made a big deal out of nothing like today. People today take what is irrelevant and they want to make it central to the discussion. They want to make it paramount. They will dismiss 
the truth of the message and want to talk about peripheral, sometimes even irrelevant topics. They want to talk about supposed errors in the Bible, although they can't find any. They want to talk about it. They want to talk about abortion. They want to talk about capital punishment or politics or Donald Trump. They want to talk about hypocrites in the church as if Christianity is built on (laughs) hypocrites. How Uncle George said he was saved didn't do much for him. All kinds, you see, of irrelevancies. None of it really matters. What matters is who Jesus is and what he did. You see, if you can get people to focus on Christ instead of Christians, they've got a challenge. Unfortunately, many times they are successful in diverting us from the most important truth. Here's the most important truth. Repent. Believe the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the answer to your sin problem. This is the truth they need to hear. Let me quickly address these family ties. It's interesting they said, is this not the son of Mary? That is highly unusual. In a patriarchal society, you would be identified with your father. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Why why do they say son of Mary? Two likely scenarios, perhaps even both. First, many suggest that Joseph was dead by this time and and probably had been dead for some time. We don't see him after Jesus is 11. Uh, But by this time, Jesus would have become to be known as the son of Mary. That's possible, but even after fathers are dead, you're still known as the son of your father. It's also possible, secondly, that he grew up in Nazareth. It's possible Jesus was known to be only the son of Mary, not Joseph. While Mark does not record the circumstances of Jesus' birth, certainly they knew that Jesus was illegitimate, the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. This could be, you see, a derogatory inference. How can an illegitimate son be Messiah? Yeah, this issue of Jesus having brothers and sisters, basically three explanations to go with that. First, since the Catholic Church has wanted to maintain the perpetual virginity of Mary, they say that these were Joseph's children from an earlier marriage, and and therefore uh, these are Jesus' step-siblings. However, the, the challenge with that is Matthew says when Joseph found that Mary was pregnant, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth. Uh, some suggest the word here could be speaking of Jesus' cousins. The problem is, in the Greek, there is a word for cousins. He doesn't use that word. Third, the most obvious meaning of the text is that these were, in fact, children of Joseph and Mary, and therefore, don't miss this, younger half-brothers, half-sisters of Jesus, which means they grew up with Jesus' familiarity. Here's what I want you to see. His family did not believe in him. As I suggested earlier in chapter 3, they came to get him. They thought him crazy. In John chapter 7, they made fun of Jesus, challenging him to go to Jerusalem, go make yourself known, because John tells us they did not believe. My point is this. Those who should believe, who watched Jesus grow up, did not believe. What fault did they find with him? Which leads to their final willful rejection, verse 3, and they took offense at him. Why would they do that? All he did was speak truth and do miracles. What's the deal? 
You should know that the word offense is the word scandalizo. I love that word. It's a word from which we get our word scandal. It's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolish, a stumbling block. And, and then Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 2. And coming to him, a living stone which has been rejected by man, choice and precious in the sight of God. This is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief stone, a, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling. And here it is, a rock of offense. Here's the point. Jesus is a rock of offense. You will either stumble on him, fall to your face in worship, or he will crush you. Brings us to very difficult verse 5, and he could do no miracles except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. That's a little bit challenging. He could do no miracle. Especially when we understand that Jesus healed people sometimes in response to faith. There were times he healed people in the midst of struggling faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's in Mark chapter 9. Uh, there were times he healed people who had no faith. Remember, he stopped the, 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 the funeral procession and the, the, the widow's son. That guy had no faith. He's dead, raised him from the dead. But here, here. We have people who willfully chose to remain in unbelief. Theirs was not a struggling faith. Theirs was a settled rejection. We've seen it. We've heard it. We will not believe it. And as a result, Jesus did not do many miracles. You see, in Mark's gospel, he could not do. In Mark's gospel, faith is necessary for God to act. Faith was a condition when he healed the woman Faith was a condition when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He would do no miracles among people. Listen, he would do no miracles among people whose hearts were hardened in unbelief. Two lessons for us as we close. Two, two lessons. I'm done. First, for believers here this morning, and here's what I want to say to you. Believers. Not everyone will believe, even those we think should believe, even those closest to you. You see, Jesus uses a well-known proverb, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. Incredibly, those who hear and see, those who should believe, often don't. Some, when presented with the evidence, will deny it, will be offended by it and reject it. Your job is not to cause them to believe. You can't cause them to believe. However, your job is to keep sharing. That, that family of Jesus who did not believe, we don't know anything more about Simon and Joseph, and his sisters are actually never named. But later we find that Mary and, and his brothers, we don't know which ones they were. We can take a guess. They're with, they're with the believers in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about the brothers of Jesus being with him. We know that James, James, Jesus' brother, becomes the pastor of the church of Jerusalem and writes the book of James. Jude, half-brother of Jesus, writes the book of Jude. Here's my point. Keep sharing. An initial reaction of the gospel is not always a final rejection. Keep sharing.
And lastly, for unbelievers here this morning who have rejected, as you consider the claims of Christ, I want to encourage you to put aside your familiarity and focus on Him, because I believe that you will find no problem with Jesus. You will find no problem if you can just get beyond the fact that you were raised in it, if you can get beyond the fact that you're familiar with it, if you can just gaze at Jesus for just a moment, you will find no problem. Last thing I would say to unbelievers is Hebrews chapter 4, take care that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's stand for prayer.